Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, he's one of the co-founders of Veggie Tales and the voice of Larry the Cucumber. Mike Naraki is still involved in producing content for kids. He's co-written a new children's book with Michael W. Smith. Find out more ahead. Then, he was arrested for sharing truth outside of an abortion clinic, was in jail a short period of time, later exonerated in the courts. You'll meet Walter Hoy and gain a sense of his pro-life perspective. And some comments ahead from national security expert Brigitte Gabriel of Act for America, who came face-to-face with radical Islamic terrorism growing up in Lebanon and has a passion to preserve Judeo-Christian values in America. And on this edition of The Intersection, it's Harold Kronk who directed two of the God's Not Dead movies. In a film now available on home video, he explores themes of loss, healing, and hope. Plus, Nanette Kirsch has written a book that shines light on a troubled man's life and ultimate death, haunted by abuse that he suffered, one of the victims of the abuse scandal among clergy. She brings biblically-centered perspective on dealing with the harmful effects of abuse. Finally, child development expert Don Runman discusses how parents can have meaningful interactions with their children during the Christmas season. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Mike Naraki is one of the co-founders of Veggie Tales and is known as the voice of Larry the Cucumber. He has teamed up with Christian musical artist Michael W. Smith for a children's book entitled Let's Get Ready for Bed. To discuss the concept and some aspects of the book, as well as the Nurturing Steps series of which it is a part, here is Mike Naraki. Well, the concept of the the series is that that, that time uh, that parents spend with their kids at bedtime is just a sacred time of reading and praying um, and and singing a lot of times. Uh, And so um, we thought it would be a great opportunity to create a cast of characters uh, uh, kind of around that time. And so uh, we came up with this group of characters called the Nighty Nights, and they're a little band that um, when a child is having a hard time falling asleep, they, they uh, turn on their Nighty Night night light, and uh, they, they, these characters show up and help sing a lullaby to help the child fall asleep. And so, um, so that's sort of the concept for for the idea, but just that, that idea that, you know, parents and, and, and children you know, spend that time together. And so having a, a book or a, or a lullaby CD, you know, to kind of, to kind of um, just sort of support that time was really what we wanted to do. And Michael, Michael has 14 grandchildren. I just, <laughs> so that, I just can't believe time, it. He's spending a lot of time <laughs> in that infant toddler <laughs> yeah. age with, with his grandkids. And he just really had it on his heart to to create a property that really, uh, you know, spoke to spoke to that age and reading you know, with your kids is so important. Um, and so we got together and um, have, uh, you know, released uh, two books so far. We have another uh, Christmas book that's coming out next year. Uh, and then we did a lullaby CD along with it all. And so it's just been a pleasure working with him and seeing his heart and just wanting to kind of come alongside w- uh, with, you know, parents and grandparents and, and just their little ones just to, re- you know, help help. Uh, you know, just support that time. Just say, okay, you know, here, here's, here, here's a, here's a little story, a fun little story. But we're, we're praying in the midst of that story. We're reminding little ones that, that you know, God is there. He's, he loves them. He's protecting them. Um, and then, you know, sharing these little lovely lullabies as, as well. Tell us about the lineup, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, the band is a. Uh, 
comprised of, you know, the, the type of uh, little plush animals you might expect uh, at bedtime. There's a teddy bear. His name is Eddie Bear. Uh, and then there's a little lamb, Sandy Lammy. Uh, he's super, super cute. And then Sleepy Puppy, uh, you know, he's the he's the bass player and the sleepiest of, of the group. <laughs> so and uh, Sandy, Sandy plays the keys. Uh, Eddie plays the guitar and Sleepy, Sleepy Puppy uh, plays the bass. So um, they're they're just a, a cute, cute group of characters. And, um, you know, just I think kids will have a lot of fun with them. And obviously by having a well, you you got Michael W. Smith, who is a legendary singer and songwriter, great musician. You've got the the guy who is responsible, the voice of silly songs with Larry. So, so you've got there's got to be obviously a musical tie-in with all of this. <laughs> well, you know, I warned Michael early on that uh, having me sing in my Larry voice is not going to be helpful for uh, kids falling asleep. <laughs> so. yeah, yeah, that would be the wake-up series, so, probably. Yeah. <laughs> so. Go to bed, sleepyhead. You know, it just doesn't work. <laughs> so. How is music actually tied in here? Well, so each of the books um, has a, a lullaby as part of the story. Uh, and so um, as parents are reading along, they can either, you know, sing a cappella, the lullaby that's in the context of the story, or there's a tie-in uh, on the book itself. You can, you can, download, the, you can download the song, um, you know, that Michael and, and the uh, Nighty Night sing and, uh, you know, hear it that way with your child. So uh, it's a couple different ways. And then there's a whole different CD, um, Lullaby, uh, which kind of, is a whole, you know, it's, you know, like a 45 minute CD of lullabies with Michael and, and, the, and the Nighty Night singing. So you have Nighty Night and Good Night. That was the first one. The most recent is entitled Let's Get Ready for Bed. So what direction did you go in for this second book in the series? Well, the first book, uh, and, and they're just, you know, they're simple, you know, good night books. Uh, the first book, uh, uh, was uh, a, a child who was having a, a tough time falling asleep and, um, you know, mom is reading a story and they call the Nighty Nights to help. Uh, and then for the second book, we thought it would be fun to actually have one of the characters, Sleepy Puppy, um, kind of going through his bedtime routine. Um, and I know when my, I have uh, two kids, they're a little bit older now. My daughter's in college and my son is in his last year of high school. Um, but um, when they were growing up, they they both had very, set bedtime routines and, you know, kind of going through those just always help them prepare, uh, you know, for going to bed every night. And so um, that's what we did with this book. You know, Sleepy Puppy's kind of going through through his routine and it's all in rhyme and it's just kind of fun. All the, all the little, you know, fun things he goes through before he goes to bed, including having a lullaby sung to him. So um, that, that's what this book is about. Mike Naraki here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website nurturingsteps.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Walter Hoy. He was jailed as the result of standing in front of an abortion clinic holding a sign with a message of hope. He shared with me about his story of being involved in pro-life activity and his court victories. He's founder of the Issues for Life Foundation and talked with me about his book, Black and Pro-Life in America, The Incarceration and Exoneration of Walter B. Hoy II. From that conversation, this is Walter Hoy. The year was 2009. The city of Oakland, California, had passed an ordinance, as I understand it, that limited free speech in front of abortion clinics in that area. And you were compelled by the Lord to just share as a witness in front of a particular clinic there 
take me back to that time and just share about your motivation and why it is that you felt so compelled to share about God's love for those that were going into that clinic with the intent of taking the life of their unborn children. My goodness, I was literally standing on a public sidewalk in front of an abortion clinic holding a sign that says, God loves you and your baby, let us help you. And at that time, we talked with the women going into the clinic, and I would help them. It didn't matter what they needed. We would help them in whatever way we could in whatever way they needed. And I was motivated because I had come to realize that the child inside the womb is created in the image of God, fully human, and should be protected by the Constitution of the United States of America. Absolutely. Now, the city of Oakland had complicated matters. It was a bit over a year before you were arrested that they had passed an ordinance. Having having that in place, how did that affect your work? What was your position with regard to that ordinance that had been passed? We were determined to move forward regardless of, of the ordinance. All during the time at the city hall with the city council, we stood and we defended the the right to free speech. But as you know, you don't always win those battles. We didn't. And so the very next week, the very next day, I I was determined to walk out there uh, to the clinic holding up the sign. And when I got there, there were, you know, several police cars waiting for me. I, I simply told them who I was. They said they knew who I was. I simply told them when I was going to walk the street and hold up the sign and try to help the women. They said they'd watch me, and they did. And initially, that first day, they didn't make a move. It wasn't until maybe about a month or so later uh, that the clinic just got tired of us helping the women. The women were changing their mind. The women were reaching for life. And eventually, they called the police, and I was arrested. How long did you have to spend in jail? Oh, I was facing four years in jail, Mm. and ultimately we had videotaped evidence in the court that proved that it was my constitutional rights that were being violated. And so the judge trying to make up for it uh, ultimately gave me a 30-day sentence in jail, and he did so hoping that I would take the back door under the table deal uh, to just plead guilty. I I wouldn't take the deal. And so ultimately I was in jail for a 30-day sentence. And after that 30-day sentence, there was still court action that took place on your behalf because you obviously, you felt like that your constitutional rights had been violated. You really felt like that you should not have been arrested. So talk about some of the court action, not only on your own behalf, but also there was a challenge to this this Oakland law. It was called a bubble law, and the courts eventually struck that down. So take us through the process, if you would. Well, we were We were challenging this law because every city could do the exact same thing at the city council level. And so we went to the district court, and no, district court said they agreed with Oakland. Finally, we decided we should go to the Supreme Court because it's really a Supreme Court decision years ago, uh, Hill versus Colorado, that allows the abortion industry to get away with laws like this. So we went to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit literally discovered 
that I was just doing nothing more than standing on a public sidewalk holding up a sign. And when they saw the video, they saw the, the pictures of it, they actually agreed with me that the law violated free speech and that the law should apply to everyone if they were going to have one. So literally the Ninth Circuit <laughs> wrote out a decision that said, we agree with Hoy. Walter Hoy here on The Intersection. Find out more at the website issues, the number four, life. Brigitte Gabriel talked with me recently. She is founder and chairman of Act for America, a national security-related organization. She shared about her own personal story, including encountering terrorism in Lebanon. In the conversation, she gave her perspective on the immigration issue and her support for legal immigration. She's the author of the book, Rise, in Defense of Judeo-Christian Values and Freedom. From that conversation, this is Brigitte Gabriel. My 9-11 happened to me in Lebanon in 1975, when radical Islamists blew up my home, bringing it down, burying me under the rubble wounded. I ended up in a hospital for two and a half months, and as I laid in a hospital bed going from one surgery to another, I would ask my father, why did they do this to us? And my father would tell me, because we are Christians, uh, the Muslims consider us infidels, and they want to kill us. So I learned since I was a 10-year-old little girl that I am wanted dead simply because I was born into the Christian faith and lived in a Christian town. I ended up leaving the hospital and coming back home, but my home was no longer the home I left. I ended up living in a bomb shelter underground without electricity, without water, and without food, very little food. And that's where I lived for the next seven years of my life from the age of 10 till the age of 17, robbed of my youth. I remember crawling under the bombs, digging out dandelions and different vegetation that grew around our bomb shelter because it was the only greenery we had to eat, Uh, crawling in a ditch under sniper's bullets to a nearby spring to get some water. Um, And that became my life. And um, I survived. I ended up moving to Israel, becoming a news anchor for World News. And that's where I met my uh, American husband, who was a war correspondent, and we got married in Jerusalem, and that's how I ended up coming to America. And I, and I, I thought I left all the crazies behind, Bob, and I thought, I'm now in America, I'm having a new life, but September 11th, 2001 changed all that. It made me realize that the crazies I thought I left behind in the Middle East have now arrived in America. And that day really was my defining moment, and that's how I began my um, political activism career, if you may say. Well, and you obviously had that up-close view of the dangers, the activities of radical Islam. You said that you really came to this country and you thought that perhaps you had left that behind. Now we are seeing worldwide a rise in radical Islam. What do you believe that the American people really need to know about this very serious threat to our security? 
Well, it is a serious threat to world peace and national security. Um, and, and, and it's amazing because everywhere else in the world right now, the world is being affected by this. Look at the terrorist attacks that they foiled in Germany uh, this week. Uh, against different markets, different Christmas markets, they know that people are out. And by the way, they were immigrants uh, who came to, to uh, Germany as refugees. So we are seeing the whole world right now suffer under this plague of radical Islamic terrorism. Um, and it is concerning. Uh, I just read the threat to New York City uh, today uh, by radical Islamists for this New Year's Eve celebrations of 2018. So we in America need to open our eyes and realize that we need to remember our unity, that unity that we had on September 11, 2001, where we came together as a nation. We were not Republicans. We were not Democrats. We were not Libertarians. We put all our differences aside that day. And for a short time, we were Americans. We were united in our patriotism. We were united for our, in our love for our country and our pride in our American flag in standing up and supporting the president, our president, to lead this nation and defend this nation from all who wish to do her harm. Move forward to today. Uh, the country has changed so much in 17 years, it's unrecognizable. But we need to realize that what makes us stronger as Americans is our unity. We may not like who's sitting in the White House. We may not like different things about each other and the way we think. But what we must remember is that united together strongly, we can fight and defeat any enemy who wish to do us harm. And that's what we need to keep in mind. And that's why I wrote my book, Rise, and I titled it Rise, Rise in Defense of Judeo-Christian Values and Freedom, because right now, our values, our freedom, and our security are under attack, and the nation has never been more divided. Brigitte Gabriel here on The Intersection. The website address is actforamerica.org. You are tuned into The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more by going to the website meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the podcast. Also, you can get subscribed to the podcast and have it delivered to your podcast-receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Also, through that homepage, you can listen to or download the current edition as well as previous editions of the podcast, and it's available through the Faith Radio app. Learn more when you go to faithradio.org. Also, through the Meeting House homepage, there are links to two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page and get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. The Intersection podcast continues now with Harold Cronk, director of the movie God Bless the Broken Road, available on home video, including DVD. In a recent conversation with me, he shared about the concept of the film, its themes of loss and hope, and actors who comprise the cast. From that conversation, this is Harold Cronk. Well, after the success of God's Not Dead, my partners and I decided that if we were going to make another faith film, uh, we wanted to make a film that was going to highlight a Christian in a true crisis of faith. We wanted to portray a Christian character that 
where all their problems aren't solved just because they they um, happen to be a Christian or because they gave their life to Christ. That's just not the way things happen. You know, there's always struggles. And so we started to look at some some possible scenarios and seeing all of our, our soldiers coming back from our foreign conflicts broken and, and beat up or some not coming home at all and, and looking at the other side of the coin and, and those that are affected by that. Um, that's where we came up with the idea of, of Amber, uh, who lost her, her husband in Afghanistan. And uh, we wanted to make a film that was going to pay tribute to the struggles that um, that those young women are facing and, and you know, husbands that have lost their wives in conflicts, our, our military who's, who's sacrificed so much for our freedoms. How do you portray faith in an honest way with with honest circumstances while still leaving the viewer with a sense of hope? That's the trick, and I think that was yeah. one of the main thrusts behind telling the story is that, you know what, just because you're a Christian, your life's not going to be perfect. We're going to have struggles. Absolutely, and it's it's through those struggles that we're going to learn more about who we are as a person and more about our faith journey. And I think to address that, the first thing we did is we hired an incredible actress, uh, Lindsay Pulsifer, who is not afraid of taking on the task of, of portraying this young woman who has had this this incredible tragedy strike her and her young daughter. And um, just being honest in the moment, you know, we, we, we're all going to have moments where we fail and, and fall short and where, where we might question our faith, you know, things that, um, you know, if, if God is all-knowing and all-good, and why does cancer exist? You know, there's always that question of why do bad things happen to good, to good people? And um, the answer is, it, it's, his plan is, is bigger than our plan. And, and we don't know the answer. We're not called to know the answers. We're called to be faithful in our walk and to know that, that no matter what, he's going to take care of us. You mentioned your main character. Her name is Amber. She lost her husband, who who was killed in Afghanistan, as I understand it. So talk about her life. What are some of the things that viewers of this particular film will see her experience? Besides the the immense loss of, of a close loved one, uh, she's struggling with keeping her house. Um, you know, so many... So many people across our country have been struggling financially over the, the past several years, since 2008. And uh, we, wanted to, we wanted to bring that to light, too. You know, there, there's so many challenges being um, a single parent. And uh, we, we just wanted to make sure that we, that we authentically represented uh, someone in, in these circumstances and let them know that, you know, there's hope and your life might not be exactly what you wanted to be, what your plan was, but but God does have a plan for it, and uh, it, it's it's through Him that that we're going to find our way. Harold Cronk here on the intersection. The film's website is GodBlessTheBrokenRoad.com. Next up on this edition of the Intersection podcast, it's author and blogger Nanette Kirsch. She shared about the background of her book, Denial, Abuse, Addiction, and a Life Derailed. She discussed the hopelessness of abuse as well as hope in Christ. From that conversation, this is Nanette Kirsch. From every outward measure, he was one of the most successful and well-liked people in our lives. Um, By the age of 35, he'd become a millionaire. He was very entrepreneurial. 
He was married. He had five kids, very faithful. Um, he was a Catholic background, very strong ethnic Catholic background. And, um, you know, was literally the funniest guy in the room. And that's coming from someone married to a guy who thinks he's the funniest guy in the room. <laughs> so, um, you know, really a remarkable person, just seemed very happy and joyful. And um, not until after um, some of the tragedies that are share in this book unfolded, um, did we and most of the other people who were close to him learn um, that he had been a victim of sexual abuse at the age of 12 and then targeted repeatedly um, within the church. Um, and that denial of that experience um, had actually led him into a dark and really destructive double life um, so that behind that shell that we saw, there were a lot of really painful things happening that eventually contributed to his demise. What I knew and, and the reason I felt um, called to write this book was in my own recovery process, God really showed me that truth that I shared with you earlier, that um, if, if you can't be intimate in your human love relationships, you're limited in your ability to experience God and be intimate with Him, which is His desire for all of us. And so um, in the case of survivors who have not dealt with their pain, um, it's very hard to feel the comfort of the Holy Spirit, to feel... Um, God's healing hand, and um, that was that was the place I started, and I, I was really interested to reconcile why people like me survived and people like my character David did not, um, and that's a big part of it. I think some of the other key learnings for me were that um, whether the effects are big or small by comparison um, depends a lot on the person and not just the severity of the abuse. I think um, we in the public tend to correlate the two. So the abuse um, incidents shared in this story weren't profound in terms of the physical violation, and yet the effects in his life were profound. And um, I think that's a really important understanding for readers to come to. You know, people are comprised differently, and, and the devastation, the emotional devastation is real. And um, I think one of the one of the third ones is this idea that just embedded in the heart of every victim of sexual abuse is a sense of blame and not being worthy. That, um, you know, we all remember what it was like to be childlike, to crawl up on Santa's lap in a trusting, innocent way, to accept the care and provision of adults and trust that they're all safe. If that's violated for you at such a profound level, um, it turns your whole world upside down. And to a person, Every victim I've met has, has a degree of self-blame and questions their worth. So that, for example, I think is why David was such an overachiever, why he became a millionaire in his mid-30s, was he was so desperate to show his worth and value and worthiness. And, um, and I think, you know, in my own life, that showed up in um, really seeking others' approval in the workplace and in other areas, allowing other people to define that for me rather than looking to God for that and trusting, trusting that view. You also, as you shared, have had experience with abuse. So how much did you see yourself in David's story? So initially, in terms of um, my friend's experience and my own, I saw no correlation, you know, and that was part of what was interesting is how did we have a similar original experience and such a different impact throughout our lives? I think as I wrote the story and built this character, um, 
those those experiences and information became really interweaved in a way that um, has been a real blessing in my life. So, for example, to write the experiences of abuse in the story really required me to go back and revisit all the aspects of what that felt like as a young person. What, how did I experience that then? Um, this idea of disassociation and as a young person going through that kind of trauma, you sort of mentally remove yourself from it and it almost looks like a series of snapshots. And that was the way um, that I wrote that scene because that's the way I remember experiencing it. Nanette Kirsch here on The Intersection. The book's website is denialbook.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's child development expert Dawn Runman, author of the book Little Steps, Big Faith, How the Science of Early Childhood Development Can Help You Grow Your Child's Faith. She shared ways that parents can help reinforce the meaning of Christmas in the minds of their children. From that conversation, this is Dawn Runman. I want to give parents permission during this busy holiday season, if they have a new baby or if they have a toddler, to say, you know, I don't think we're going to go to all these big events because we're not going to get a chance to have meaningful time with um, a a loved family member or a friend. Um, I would encourage parents to think about what are the events that you would like to be um, involved in with your young child, and maybe it's inviting someone over or maybe it's a smaller, close, intimate gathering where you can really have this meaningful time for your child to interact with and get to know um, a much smaller number of people. So it's okay to say no to that busyness, even if there's that expectation that everybody shows up. Um, This is a really holy, blessed time of your child's life, and I think parents can prioritize having more quiet, uh, relational times with the people that they really love and want their child to have a connection with. Well, there are several different areas that you cover and that you can relate to the Christmas season. And something, and obviously, this can be important with developing meaningful moments with children during the holidays. But I even think during the Christmas season, it gives us an opportunity to experience more of God and to really think more deeply about some of these different concepts of God and His love and His truth. And one of the areas that you concentrate on is language. And obviously, teaching children these words and their meaning are important. You have the practice of Advent that a number of families do take part in. Churches do that as well. Just comment on the plethora of Christmas words and how you can really drive home that meaning. Yes, I think the language that we use around um, Christmas time, the language that we use this month is really important for parents to consider because we want our children to know uh, the story, the story of, you know, Mary's pregnancy, um, you know, and even before that, the arrival of the angel to her, the arrival of the angel in the dream to Joseph. There are so many of those stories sort of leading up to the birth of Jesus that sometimes get overlooked. Uh, I know within our culture, um, you know, all the focus is sort of the stable, the manger, and, you know, how can we put a picture of that on a gift bag and sell it? But as Christians, we have these really important stories, you know, earlier in Luke's gospel that help us get ready as well when we read about Mary and Elizabeth and Joseph. 
And um, so thinking about language and the stories that we begin to tell our young children, so stories plural, not just the story of the birth of Jesus um, laid in the manger, but the stories leading up to that, and even the stories after um, when Anna and Simeon see um, Jesus in the temple, that we think about the fact that our children are going to grow up surrounded by other stories. They're surrounded by the story of Rudolph. They're surrounded, of course, by um, all the stories about Santa. And our children need our help to see how the language we're using around the story of Jesus is a true story. It is a story that's central to our faith and who we are as Christian people. And while I'm not saying that anyone throw the story of Santa out the window, which, you know, that would be impossible, but we also want kids to know sort of, well, what, you know, what are the, what are the things that Santa does to bring out the best in us? We need to focus on helping our children know that the Christmas story is the true story that helps us know how God sent his son um, to be with us here on earth and live with us. And that the Christmas story is such an important part of children seeing that Jesus was born, um, on this earth in uh, humble circumstances and that that's a story we want to reinforce for young children through the stories that we read to them from Bible storybooks and from picture books and also um, give them ways to kind of play the story. Don Runman here on The Intersection. Learn more through Facebook at Dr. Don Runman, R-U-N-D-M-A-N, or follow Don Runman on Twitter. This has been the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. You will find a link to the Intersection Podcast. You can subscribe to it and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. You can also listen to previous editions as well as the current episode of the Intersection Podcast through that homepage. Also, through faithradio.org, you can find out about downloading the Faith Radio app for your smartphone or tablet. The Intersection Podcast is available through that app. Also, through the Meeting House homepage, you can get connected to two blogs. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.